Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new uh, installation of the Greenhouse Online uh, Book Talks. This week, we are visited by Aidan Tynan, who's senior lecturer in English literature at Cardiff University, uh, and he will talk about his uh, new book, The Desert in Modern Literature and Philosophy, uh, published by Edinburgh University Press uh, in 2020. So I'm just going to leave it over to you, Aidan. Oh, thank you. Uh... Uh, thanks both for uh, having me. This is uh, it's, it's really nice to be able to um, to talk about a, uh, a piece of research, really, that I've been living with for the past ten years. Um, uh, and it's great as well to speak to a room, a virtual room, full of environmental humanists, because usually I'm speaking to literature people. Uh, so it's it's nice to get. Uh, a different crowd and an, an interdisciplinary crowd as well. Um, I suppose the first thing I should say is that um, I wasn't an, an environmental humanist when I started this project. Um, so this this project is what uh, got me to the environmental humanities and all of that stuff. My background uh, is in literature and critical theory. Um, uh, I did my PhD and Deleuze and Guattari, French philosophers, their conceptions of literature. Um, my PhD is actually in critical and cultural theory. So, uh, uh, so that's the background I started from. And near the end of my PhD, about 10 years ago, I, I started to notice uh, uh, the figure of the desert uh, featuring across a number of uh, important uh, continental philosophy texts. Uh, and then I also noticed that uh, a lot of my favorite 20th century literature, uh, modernism and postmodernism also featured the desert uh, quite prominently. Um, uh, and so I set about the project trying to bridge those two things. Um, and it says it right there in the title quite clearly, it is the desert in modern literature and philosophy. But along the way, I became an environmental humanist and Really, uh, the book, I think, bears the hallmarks of that learning experience. Um, uh, not that the learning experience ever finishes, of course, but um, uh, I think, well, when I read it anyway, uh, I, I know that I, if I had started the project from an environmental humanities perspective, it would have been a very different book. Um, but let me go and talk about the book itself. And this this paper, I'll, I'll Keep it short, it's about 20 minutes. So um, I'll read my presentation and, and then I'll, I'll, I'll take any questions uh, you, you might have. So what I try to do in my book is to map out some of the different roles played by deserts and wastelands within the Western environmental imagination. My key premise is that philosophy and literature since the 19th century have produced ideas and images of deserts which express profound concerns about the meaning of space and place within secular modernity. In short, the cultural construction of the desert shows us how space becomes a problematic concept for modern consciousness. This, I claim, also tells us some important things about how environmental and ecological awareness has emerged over the past two centuries. A certain conception of the desert as a growing or engulfing landscape has been a factor in the development of our awareness of environmental crisis uh, as a phenomenon of global or planetary extent. Imagining the earth itself becoming one huge desert has been a feature of the history of the concept of the Anthropocene, which I'll discuss right at the end of the paper. Maybe we can continue those discussions in the Q&A. One of the first difficulties, first of many, I suppose, that I encountered writing this book was trying to arrive at a solid definition of what a desert is and realizing that there is none. In the physical sciences, we find perhaps to our surprise that there is no widely agreed upon definition of desert. There are rather many different ones. Aridity, of course, is the key metric. Deserts are generally defined as areas receiving on average less than 250 millimeters of rain per year. 
But Australia's deserts, for example, can exceed this average, can and do exceed this average due to uneven rainfall distributions. There are also factors such as evaporation, wind, vegetation patterns, landscape morphology, soil quality, and so on, and so on. As the geologist Michael Welland writes, how you choose to define a desert depends very much on why you wish to do so in the first place. And, and when I read that, I, I, I thought, well, that's, uh, that's how I'm going to situate uh, my project. Um, that instability of defining what a desert is physically or objectively. Historically and linguistically, the concept of the desert designates not a positive content, but a lack, an absence or a deprivation. And etymology gives us a good sense of this. I'm a literary scholar, so I like etymology. The English word desert comes from the Latin desertum, itself a translation of the Greek word eremos, which means uh, emptiness or solitude. The eremos is the place of a, an, er an eremite or a hermit, in the Bible, the Eremos is a landscape of abandonment and wandering, but also the place where shepherds lose their sheep. In the parable of the lost sheep from the Gospel of Luke, we read, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the Eremos and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. The desert or the semi-desert pasture land where topsoil is shallow and vegetation sporadic is the terrain of both sin and salvation. In the Old Testament, it was Cain who was an agriculturalist, farmer, while Abel was a pastoralist, a shepherd, a nomad. The Cain and Abel story dramatizes a crucial dualism within the Western tradition between a sedentary and a nomadic paradigm of life. We should also note that the Latin desertum has an older Egyptian origin related to the hieroglyph pronounced desert, meaning a place that has been forsaken. This is the barren red land in opposition to the fertile black land on the banks of the Nile. And so we have in this opposition of the red and black land, a foundational environmental aesthetic, dramatizing the difference between barren and fertile. The very idea of fertile soil, of nature as fruitful, as gift, as a, as a thing to be protected or as a resource to be valued, often appears impossible without the desert as a counter concept. Some of the foundational concepts of Western thought then may well have been forged in close proximity to the desert on the desert fringes. And the American uh, philosopher Paul Shepard offers us a provocative thesis along these lines. And I promise you, this is my only long quote. He writes, if ideas have habitats in which they originate and prosper, then the desert edge might be called the home of Western thought. Historically, this is common knowledge. For the peoples of the dry landscapes of Egypt, Sumer, Assyria, Palestine and the Eastern European and Eurasian borders of the Mediterranean Sea fashion many of the concepts that define Occidental civilization. These margins are not desert habitats per se, but ecological ecotones. They include the spare shrub communities at the fringe of sandy plains or stony plateaus, the patches of grassland and slightly moister slopes, traces of savanna, the evergreen dry forest of the mountain islands, the verdant park and wetlands of the oases and river margins proper, and the derelict phases of all such vegetation communities degenerating toward barren rock as a result of climate change and human abuse. It was never the occupation of the desert that mattered, but its isolating effects. It began with dramatic suddenness at the edges of valleys where cultivation and settlement leave off always reminding farmers and their urban cousins of the separation of fertility and barrenness, end quote. Um, let me move on now and give a sense of how I engage with the desert in literature and philosophy. This makes up the bulk of the book. Let's begin by looking at what is perhaps the most famous desert in English poetry, Percy Bysshe Shelley's sonnet Ozymandias from 1818. 
the poem describes the ruins of a gigantic statue of a pharaoh lying in the desert. And here are the first four lines. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies. Key sources for Shelley included the writings of prominent 18th century travelers and Orientalists, such as the English Richard Pocock and the French Volney, who both wrote famous books about their journeys through North Africa, the Mediterranean and the Middle East. Following Edward Said, we can regard the Romantic period as constructing images of Oriental deserts in order to symbolize the crisis of European subjectivity brought on by secular modernity. The, uh, sorry, brought on by secular modernity, the industrial age and the age of revolution. Volney's book in particular was a key inspiration for Shelley for political reasons, because it offered a meditation on the ruins of ancient empires at a time when the empires of Europe were themselves being toppled by a revolutionary spirit. What is notable about these late 18th century travel writings, however, is that the desert does not appear in them for its own sake. It appears rather as a blank background on which the ruins of civilization become legible to the European eye. The desert, in other words, retains its older significance as an absence or void, but also begins to acquire a new modern significance as an encroaching or engulfing landscape in which the signs and meanings of human society can be viewed from the perspective of an inhuman spatio-temporal immensity. The irony underscored by the closing half of Shelley's poem is that societies seem rooted in place like permanent monuments, but not from the perspective of the desert, which, th which throws all such human constructions into a sharp relief. And here are the poem's famous closing lines. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, he mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Those lone and level sands suggest a new environmental awareness of terrestrial space as a material force strong enough to dethrone the mightiest of tyrants. The inscriptions of civilization are still legible, but only as ruins or traces, or perhaps fossils. In part, Shelley is drawing the consequences of the modern Cartesian view of space as a pure physical extension indifferent to human affairs. The Cartesian view, beginning in the 17th century, was key in establishing what we can call a Western metaphysics of space, in which life must struggle to make a place for itself within a brute, indifferent universe. One space becomes thought as res extensa, an extended thing, as, as Descartes described it, placelessness, becomes a real possibility and meaningful dwelling becomes far from certain. This indeed is the, is the context in which the science of ecology itself arose. The very term ecology coined by German scientist Ernst Haeckel in the 1860s is derived from the Greek word oikos, meaning home or dwelling place. Modernist poets such as T.S. Eliot are the inheritors of Shelley's desert. In Eliot's 1922 poem, The Wasteland, the streets of London become a desolate environment where rootless citizens drift in a spiritual and sexual anguish recalling the torments of Dante's hell. One of the overriding themes of the poem is sterility. Instead of the nymphs of pastoral, Eliot presents us with heaps of rubbish drifting down the River Thames. In W.B. Yeats' poem, The Second Coming from 1920, the desert as wasteland is an apocalyptic stage on which the crisis of modern alienation is presented. In the aftermath of World War I, history appeared to have no other meaning than devastation. The modernist desert was also a scenography, though, by which a new kind of world could be imagined. 
ancient ideas about the desert as both a place of sin and salvation that are thus re uh, redeployed by modernism in the early decades of the 20th century. For the philosopher Edward Casey, Eliot's Londoners suffer from what he calls atopia, a malignant placelessness that is the logical outcome of the Western metaphysics of space. The desert here is viewed negatively as wasteland, but it is also invested with huge aesthetic potential, as if the modern poet could only write from a position of exile and wandering. If we move slightly forward in time and look at some of the most well-known of the postmodernist writers from the 60s and 70s, figures such as J.G. Ballard, Thomas Pynchon, Don DeLillo, Angela Carter, and so on, we find a strange continuity with the deserts of modernism and with the idea that the desert is a place both of exile and aesthetic vitality at the same time. European philosophers such as Friedrich Nietzsche and Martin Heidegger, meanwhile, deployed the desert in similar ways to grasp the crisis of a society deprived of its traditional religious and metaphysical foundations. Nietzsche, of course, is the most, uh, sorry, Nietzsche, of course, is most famous for proclaiming that God is dead and we have killed him. In the aftermath of the death of God, Western subjectivity is struck by what he called nihilism, which essentially means a crisis of spiritual values, a crisis of belief. He used the image of a growing desert to evoke this spread of nihilism over the face of the earth. In the 1880s, in his book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he proclaimed in a style halfway between philosophy and poetry, the desert grows, woe to him who harbors deserts. Heidegger subsequently used Nietzsche's image of a growing desert to characterize what he saw as the destructive spread of the modern techno-scientific worldview. For Heidegger, especially in his work after the Second World War, the history of Western science and philosophy leads inevitably to what he calls uh, an assault on the earth itself. It is not simply that subjectivity is deprived of its religious support, but that technology effectively replaces religion. The earth then becomes a mere stock of materials or resources or energies to be demanded forth by technical means. The violence of this assault involves a physical violence against nature, yes, but also a more profound, though harder to recognize, devastation of being as such. And Heidegger described modernity as an age of the desert, writing, Quote, devastation means for us, after all, that everything, the world, the human and the earth will be transformed into a desert. Being of an age of devastation then would consist precisely, as precisely in the abandonment of being. Within this new global condition, Heidegger argued that people become atopic, uprooted like nomads, lacking any essential relationship to a dwelling place. And one of his proposed solutions to this crisis involved poetry. He famously emphasized a line from the German poet Holderlin, poetically, man dwells. Heidegger argued that poetry and art in general may be ways of regaining a sense of dwelling. But what about modern environmental and ecological consciousness? From this point of view, the nihilistic deserts of Eliot and Heidegger are just negative stereotypes of regions surprisingly rich in life. Today, of course, we recognize both the beauty and fragility of desert ecologies. We often tend to think of the desert as nature in its purest, most untouched state. But this idea itself serves ideological purposes. In the American discourse of the wilderness and writers from the second half of the 20th century, such as Edward Abbey and Terry Tempest Williams, desert becomes a means of preserving a sense of individual freedom and spiritual meaning in the context of a deadening modern society. As he kayaks down the Colorado River, Abbey in his 1968 book, Desert Solitaire, grumbles to himself, quote, what incredible shit we put up with most of our lives, the domestic routine, same old wife every night, the stupid and useless and degrading jobs, the insufferable arrogance of elected officials, 
the crafty cheating and the slimy advertising of the businessmen, the tedious wars in which we kill our buddies instead of our real enemies back home in the capital, the foul, diseased and hideous cities and towns we live in, the constant petty tyranny of automatic washers and automobiles and TV machines and telephones. The desert, will, the desert wilderness is for Abby the antidote to all of this. But we should bear in mind the genealogy of these ideas. They stem not only from settler colonial projects involving violent appropriations of indigenous lands, but also in a more nuanced way from modes of Western consciousness extracting new aesthetic values from environments it had previously condemned as ugly, horrifying and forsaken. While Pocock, Volney and other 18th century writers regarded the desert as a dreary or terrifying emptiness in the 19th century, we find a new positive aesthetic uh, of the desert emerging for the first time. In a passage from a journal written in 1853, the French Orientalist painter Eugène Fromentin reflects on his journey through the Sahara and what the desert means for landscape painting. Quote, the desert appears uniform, yet hides under that apparent unity of hues, an infinite number of nuances and tonalities broken down. It has rigid forms uh, that are more often placed horizontally than vertically, very well defined with no haze, no attenuation, almost without any appreciable atmosphere and no depth of distance, end quote. So the colonial eye here, the European colonial eye, is extracting new meanings from what was once an aesthetic void. Through aesthetic categories, European colonial subjectivity makes a home for itself in these landscapes. The American art historian John C. Van Dyke applied Ruskinian notions of the picturesque to the deserts of California, Arizona, and Mexico in his 1901 book, The Desert, long considered a classic of American nature writing. Writers like Abbey and Tempest have since followed in Van Dyke's footsteps. Like Fromentin, Van Dyke insists on the exalted beauty of what was once considered desolate and ugly terrain, but he also argues that the indigenous peoples of these regions are completely incapable of such aesthetic appreciation. For Abbey, likewise, the desert is much less an ecology than an, air, than an arena in which a rugged, masculine American individualism can be affirmed. The aesthetics of the desert here become just another means to appropriate territory. And I want to finish uh, just briefly on the concept of the Anthropocene and how the idea of the desert as a growing or engulfing landscape plays a key part in its history. But George Perkins Marsh, one of the first American conservationists, wrote a hugely uh, influential book called Man and Nature in 1864. And this is the book that really began the whole scientific discussion about human impact on the planet as a whole. In a later edition of the book, Marsh deployed Antonio Stopani's term, the Anthropozoic, to suggest a geological age defined by humanity. Uh, one of Marsh's main arguments in his book uh, was about the links between deforestation and the spread of deserts. Like Shelley, he looks back on older civilizations like the Roman Empire and sees the climatological future of humanity to be one menaced by a growing or encroaching desert. Today, of course, thanks to uh, climate scientists Paul Crutzen and Eugene Sturmer, the Anthropocene is the standard term used to talk about humanity's indelible impact on the planet. But before they introduced that term, the biologist E.O. Wilson suggested the term Eremozoic from the ancient Greek Eremos, which as we saw means desert or a place of solitude. Uh, so this is Wilson's term for an age of climate change and mass extinction. And more recently, he's suggested the term Eremocene as a direct competitor to Anthropocene. So the idea of an encroaching desert landscape of potentially planetary extent has been one of the main ways in which scientists, writers, poets, and philosophers have imagined human impact on the earth for the past 200 years. 
But if we take Paul Shepard's point about the desert fringes seriously, we have to see Western environmental consciousness as simultaneously attracted and repelled by the desert. A key aspect of this is the nomadic paradigm. Uh, in the desert, nomadic life is often the rule rather than the exception. Uh, a wonderful book by Sonia Shah called The Next Great Migration came out just a few months ago, makes a very good case that scientists have consistently underestimated the degree to which the nomadic paradigm is written into the history of evolution itself. Uh, so this is something that is only very recently being recognized. Life has evolved to move about. But in many ways, environmental consciousness and environmental aesthetics have assumed the sedentary paradigm. And this is a hindrance to understanding our climatological present and future in which human and non-human life is increasingly on the move. The desert has often been a powerful image of environmental destruction precisely because it suggests placelessness and uprooting. Climate expert uh, Joseph Rom has used the term dust bullification rather than desertification to describe the current age of wildfires and mega droughts because the refugee was such a key figure of the American Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Heidegger, T.S. Eliot, and possibly E.O. Wilson too, are appalled by the prospect of a desert earth, not just because it entails the destruction of life, but because it entails perhaps the end of the sedentary paradigm. If the desert is such a powerful image of our climatological future, it is so partly because it is the terrain of nomadic life. Okay, that's that's my presentation. So I'm uh, I'm sorry if I went too long there, but um, that's that's great. Thank you so much, Aiden. And I think the the perfect transition from that. You were just talking about how the desert um, is about nomadic life and you know movement. And one of the mm -hmm. things with that, um, of course, has to do with the availability of of water and yeah. the oasis and, and moving between them. And so Gabriella um, had a question, you know, how does the oasis relate then to the desert? So if the desert is, is nothing, you know, does that show up in your literature as some counter or, you know, a twinned or is it not there at all? And people just talk about the, the desert. Well, I guess the, I mean, the desert would include, the, the oasis would be, as much part of the desert as anything else. I mean, what an oasis is, is I guess the fact that um, kind of the resources for life in a desert, they don't stay in the same place, they move around. So we have to go to them rather than uh, just being able to presume that they're there. Um, I, I do talk about the desert island in my book, which might be uh, um, somewhat similar to the oasis. Uh, um, uh, if you want me to talk about that, I can, but um, uh, I, I, no, I don't talk about the oasis as such. Well, I think it's really interesting to think about how we also use the desert metaphorically for things which are not desert. So yeah. I have a, a, an article myself titled An Oasis in a Watery Desert, because that's what my, uh, the, the people I was studying um, are talking about the Gulf of Mexico and mm. the landscape in the Gulf of Mexico and, and the fact that um, the, there aren't coral communities that grow because it's kind of a muddy flat bottom. And so therefore it's a desert. And so numerous of them talk about it as a, as a desert, even though obviously it's under the water. Yeah. But so they're using desert in that um, barren sense. Yeah. I mean, another interesting thing is, is uh, what scientists are calling dead zones, right? So these are part of the sea that have been, they're not barren of life. They've actually been taken over by uh, algae and, 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 and other kinds of life and have been deoxygenated because of that. So, so, so in one sense, so dead zones are kind of deserts, but they're also full, full of life, just a, a type of life that has taken over and, 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 I guess, uh, at the expense of other forms of life. Um, so, yeah. Uh, 
And I think one of the other interesting um, things here is to think about, yeah, since you're doing an English philosophy literature, you know, or European, it's 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 really starting from kind of European philosophy. Yeah, yeah. How the desert then is interestingly one of the few ecotone types that that isn't there in. Europe, or I don't think it is anyway. And in, in the regular part of continental Europe, we don't have any places that are really desert. I mean, we have Savannah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But um, in that sense, it's kind of the same as tropical rainforest, which yeah. also becomes kind of potentially both this really scary place and this also, um, you know, a place of kind of solitude and possibility at the same time. So I was yeah. wondering if you if you've thought about is there something that's particular about them not having desert? So this Orientalism yeah, yeah. of the I desert. Mean that's, so I mean, this is one of the things that, uh, that I was quite I'm quite conscious of that the book takes a European perspective to a non-European landscape. I mean, that's uh, I guess you could. It, it, you could criticize me for doing that, I um, but I think if I had taken a non-European approach to the desert, it would be a completely different book. Um, uh, and what interests me uh, is that, in a sense, the desert is a concept that only really makes sense to people who don't live there, in the sense that it's the desert, in, in the sense that it has been constructed in the, uh, the traditions I'm talking about. Um, is something beyond it. It's it's a kind of uh, geographical alterity or otherness. It's something that belongs uh, outside of the cultivated areas beyond the city gates. Um, so I, I guess really what I was interested in the book was seeing how uh, Europeans reacted and responded to this geographical otherness uh, and what that can tell us uh, uh, about you know not only uh, Western traditions but also about you know the environmental traditions that have come out of those, uh, those kind of Western societies and Western traditions. Um, uh, so hopefully, um, uh, hopefully that works in the book. It, it you know it, it's something that I worry about, but whenever I write something, I immediately think oh, I should have written it completely different. But that's that's the kind of that that was a major decision that I made. When I was writing it. I mean, Nietzsche, for example, writes a lot about deserts, but the furthest he ever got to a desert, I think, was Italy. Um, so a lot of these writers, they weren't, they never went to deserts, but they had an idea, a conception of what the desert was that spoke to them. Uh, and that's why I'm really interested in Paul Shepard's idea that um, Western civilization itself uh, Kind of emerged next to the desert on the desert fringes and so there is this tension between the nomadic and the sedentary paradigm there's a kind of shifting there is an an uncertainty in that paradigm it's not a solid dualism it's a uh, it's a shifting one um it's interesting what you said though about um european deserts because i think um do, do you know like the 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 um the spanish like the the or not the, like the italian <laughs> the Italian uh, uh, spaghetti Western films, mm. a lot with uh, Clint Eastwood and the good, the bad and the ugly and those. Uh, I think a lot of those were shot in Southern Spain and they're supposed to be the, the deserts of the American West. But um, the landscape of Southern Spain, I guess, was a, a close enough pro approximation. Uh, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I grew up in the desert. So yeah. um, I'm from West Texas um, yeah. originally. So it's interesting to think about the ways, yeah, in which the, the desert is seen as this um, place of kind of this desolation and, um, you know, non-life. And yes, how, how that perspective is from the outside versus if you live there, of course, you see all the life there all the time. Yeah. Um, but that is a is not something that necessarily comes through when you're coming from the outside. Um, and I guess Ted here had a comment about the desert actually in the in the western part of the U.S. as well. Um, yeah. so thinking about this 
uh, Sonoran, and it's mobilized as a technology of death, right? Mm, so there's yep. both, right now it's it's you know you keep the migrants out and they're basically dying in the desert. Yeah. So we can also look back um, historically. Of course, some of your uh, postmodern writers are responding in in a a world that's been changed by nuclear technology, yep. which is yep. uh, you know exploded in the desert, right? Yep. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. How does that factor in? Yeah, yeah. No, that's um that that's a really important point. Uh, uh, so yeah, Rebecca Solnit has written a great uh, book. Um, uh, uh, what's it called? I forget the name of the book. Um, but she, she's written about um, her experiences as as a an anti uh, uh, nuclear weapons testing activist in 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 the deserts in the American Southwest. Uh, and and it's quite startling the way she phrases it. She says that nuclear a nuclear war has been going on for decades in the desert. Um, uh, and it's, it's so it's it, so that connection between mass death and uh, mass pollution and the eradication of life. Is is it's, all of that stuff is is connected to the desert landscape, which is, as you say, full of life. Um, but in the imaginary, uh, uh, both the popular imaginary and the literary imaginary and the cinematic imaginary, uh, the two things are, are connected. So, for example, Don DeLillo, one of the great postmodern authors, um, uh, he, he writes a lot about the desert as as a place of of of, of weapons testing, but also as a place where we discard our trash um so in one, one of the images from underworld is great his magnum opus is a big hole in the desert where they're just piling loads and loads of trash into it um uh, and, and he also talks about he describes uh, some abandoned american uh military technology that's piled up somewhere in the desert as well um uh, so yeah that that so that connection with 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 uh kind of military destruction and uh, technological destruction and mass death and the desert has been really, really important. Uh, uh, and it's something I talk about quite a bit, actually, in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Um, Fenarna, you had a question. Yeah, so I wanted to get come back to uh, one of the things you mentioned at the very beginning, because you said that in those 10 years you worked in, on this material, you became an environmental humanist or got like into that as a field yeah. and that you would have written the book very differently if you started there. Could you expand a bit on that? I mean, what, what is it in a way, what does it mean then to do environmental humanities to you? Because I think mm. everyone comes mm -hmm. into this, this broad field from different places. Yeah. I mean, so I, I, I mean, I mean, the way I wrote the book, I'm much more interested in the desert as a set of ideas or aesthetic responses rather than a set of uh, physical geographies. Um, but, you know, gradually uh, bringing uh, my, my research closer to the environmental humanities um, uh, and, and kind of immersing myself in all of that scholarship. Uh, I think if I were to write it now, I, I would definitely be more uh, uh, sensitive to the physical geographies of the various deserts uh that i discuss in the book um uh so yeah that that's definitely one thing um that i would do differently i mean i i would also uh include a lot more i think uh uh indigenous um uh points of view uh the points of view of indigenous peoples who um uh uh who, who actually live in desert environments. Um, so those, those would be two things. Um, it, it would probably be less philosophical. It, it, is, um, it is quite a philosophical work. There's, there's lots of Deleuze in there because that's, that's who I kind of, that's who I did my PhD on. So there's lots of Deleuze and Guattari and Heidegger. Um, but I also think uh, I do have a, a, a critique of eco-criticism uh, in there as well. Uh, especially um, uh, bioregional forms of eco-criticism uh, 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 and, and the sort of uncritical acceptance of the idea of place that I find in a lot of eco-critical work. Um, uh, so um, I, I do critique that a fair bit in the book. Um, and, and I think I, I did that because I felt myself an, an outsider coming into, uh, coming into that eco-critical discourse. I felt more able to critique it or I felt I had a perspective to add. Um, 
so so yeah, uh, there are, there are multiple things I would have done differently, I guess. Yeah. You know. Well, I think Eric's question is a perfect follow up for that. Thinking about okay, these philosophers you worked with them in your in your earlier work, um, mm. Heidegger, Deleuze, and Guattari. Uh, so so you were familiar with their work. So then, um, are there particular texts? or approaches, I guess, that you found most useful from them to talk about? I mean, was it purely, oh, they have this bit in there about the desert or was it something mm. about kind of the way they're writing or, or things they're taking up that was particularly useful for you? Yeah, so I, I mean, I guess Deleuze and Guattari um, throughout their works, they, they put forward this nomadic paradigm that that's my term. They they use the term nomadic, um, uh, uh, and uh, um, that that idea in their work emerges from their critique of psychoanalysis uh, and their conception of the schizophrenic as a kind of exiled person uh, or, or someone who has been uh, exiled from society, who's kind of a wanderer, uh, a, a nomadic figure. Um, so Deleuze and Guattari are constantly emphasizing this nomadic versus sedentary uh, opposition that I, I kind of discuss in my uh, in my paper there. Um, so, uh, uh, so yeah, I, I definitely take from them the, 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 uh, the idea of a nomadic outlook um, uh, and, and to try to view the, the desert as a kind of nomadic terrain. Um, uh, I mean, so Heidegger, uh, I mean, Heidegger is is a very interesting, very divisive and problematic figure. He he was a member that he joined the the Nazi Party in 1932. Never renounced his membership. Um, uh, uh, you know, was uh, anti-Semitic. Um, uh, interestingly, he he uh, he he associated Jews with the desert. Um, so when the desert features in his work as as a, as a way of Denouncing modern technological civilization, he associated in in his one of his uh, seminars from 1933. He uh, he he describes Semitic nomads uh, who have no connection to the land. And then in his black notebooks, his personal notebooks, he describes the Jews and the desert um, uh, in similar terms. Uh, so so Heidegger and 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 part of my sort of his. Well, my, my critique of the eco-critical um, uh, kind of emphasis on place comes from uh, my reading of Heidegger here uh, and, and Heidegger's idea that we need to be rooted in the soil, kind of blood and soil Nazi ideology, and that that's the only thing that can, that can possibly save us from this, you know, modern technology that's uprooted us and deracinated us and turned the world into a desert. Um, uh, so, so putting those two philosophical approaches together, the Heideggerian uh, and the Deleuzian, uh, was an interesting clash for me, uh, and it was an interesting way for me to uh, to kind of develop a sort of nomadic critique of um, of the kinds of accounts of place that one tends to find in eco criticism and the environmental humanities. Um, and, and then kind of using the, the the idea of the desert as a kind of placelessness. Not places, as that's a negative way to say it, but as a kind of nomadic terrain. So yeah, Dillis and Guattari and Heidegger were, were, were pretty instrumental for, for me, for those reasons. Yes, and so to follow up on, on you know, what was instrumental or how you've thought about things. There's a question about DeLillo and some of the other postmodern writers here about their, oh, yeah. their hearkening to the ascetic uh, practice or, or you know, thinking back to the desert in the monastic sense, right? Yeah. The, the, hermit, the, the hermits that live in the desert. Yeah. How does that idea of the ascetic desert factor into the way postmodernists use the desert well yeah it's really it's 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 really interesting um I, I i don't write that extensively on the desert fathers but they do desert fathers and mothers um 
they do feature in the book. These were uh, early Christian, ascetic, mystic uh, figures, very interesting people from around the fourth, fifth century. Um, uh, they left the cities of uh, the Roman Empire and they uh, went out to the deserts of uh, Egypt, Palestine, and elsewhere. Um, the most famous of them was uh, St. Anthony of the Desert. Um, uh, he, he famously fought off demons who were tempting him. And uh, there's like some famous depictions of uh, St. Anthony's battle with demons in the desert through, you know, uh, Western art, Christian, Christian art features uh, that, that landscape a lot. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things that I came across reading about, about those people was uh, that they regarded the desert not as nature, but as a non-natural environment. Uh, so cities would allow human nature to flourish and thrive with all its sinfulness and fallenness. Uh, and, and the desert would be this resolutely non-natural environment, um, a place where they could escape from nature uh, in a way. Um, uh, now, how that relates to postmodernism, I mean, you do get these ascetic uh, uh, hermit-type figures in DeLillo's writing, for example. Um, so his novel, Point Omega, from uh, 2011, I think it is. Uh, uh, the main character in that book is a retired academic who served as uh, an advisor for the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Um, and he's retreated to the desert of uh, it's Anza Borrego uh, National Park in California. Um, and it's, that, that's a, an environment noted for its, uh, for its fossils. I think it's very, they're very, you can find some very prominent uh, fossil remains there. Um, uh, and so again, it, it goes back to what, what I was saying earlier about that connection between technological mass death and militarism and the desert. Um, but uh, in, in, in that novel, DeLillo has Elster, his protagonist, as a kind of desert monk who was just sort of meditating on his own guilt for his role in Iraq uh, and you know, the aftermath uh, in American culture. Um, it's a very, very interesting novel. And DeLillo's prose itself, it's very spare. It's almost like haiku. Um, so there is a sort of asceticism to the prose itself. And it's a very short book. You can read it in an hour or something like that. But um, there is a sort of meditativeness to the language that is, you know, directly inspired by, by the landscape. Um, uh, yes. Um, I mean, in, in, in an author like Ballard, uh, you often have uh, isolated communities. Uh, although the desert island is more of a, 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 a prominent theme in Ballard. Um, in Angela Carter, you have uh, uh, a band of militant feminists living in the desert who uh, capture a, a, an Englishman and uh, turn him into a, a, a woman using plastic surgery. And Angela Carter, and, and uh, well, Carter's doing interesting things there with the whole fertile barren imagery. Um, uh, so yeah, there's lots of kind of weird quasi-religious, quasi-spiritual stuff going on uh, in those postmodernist uh, depictions of the desert. Um, uh, yeah, definitely, absolutely. So what is your next project? Are you going with another environmental humanities? Are you going to some other kind of literature analysis or philosophy? Um, well, I, well, currently I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in, I guess it kind of goes back to what I was saying about, uh, about Heidegger. I'm interested in the far right and environmentalism and how far right discourse has been a feature of environmentalism from you know the nazis onwards um and 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 what that means and how best to kind of combat it and how best to respond to it um from an environmentalist point of view um there's kind of there's, there's been a resurgence of uh kind of far right green 
political ideas online and elsewhere in the past few years. So it, uh, I'm interested in asking uh, what that means and uh, also how that's connected to ideas of national identity. Um, I'm here in Britain, of course, and we've had Brexit dominating our lives for the past four years or more now. Um, and a, uh, a lot of that has to do with kind of, um, well, national identity, definitely, but also um, an idea of the landscape and the wilderness of Britain itself. There's been a profusion of nature writing, new nature writing in Britain over the past 10 years. And a lot of it is quite nationalistic. It's called things like Our Land by Mark Cocker um, uh, and other books like that. Uh, there's a, uh, an environmentalist called Paul Kingsnorth. He's very much, uh, well, you, you could accuse him of eco-fascist or extreme right-wing tendencies. He, he wrote an article describing the need for ecological Englishness. Um, so you do have a resurgence of these discourses about national identity and uh, new ecological stories. So that's that's one of the things I'm thinking of it. I think it would be really interesting to think through to how the rewilding discourse in particular, which takes over a lot of this, actually is is perhaps building on or playing on the desert tropes, right? So that we've mm -hmm. we've somehow made something that you see as unproductive whether or not it is is beside the point but yeah but there's this idea that you've made things into into deserts and then you're going to make them alive again so it's yeah, yeah. interesting to consider it in that um yeah yeah no absolutely um yeah and the idea of the wilderness or what going back to nature means and there's this i'm interested in the sort of unspoken political and ideological assumptions uh running through a, a lot of this discourse um so that's yeah that will probably be the next thing i do that's great um so i just want to thank you for uh coming and talking with us um today about your book the desert in modern literature and philosophy um which is with uh edinburgh university press yep. um so thank you very much for sharing this with us well thanks for having me it's been great i've really enjoyed it <laughs>